The views, information or opinions expressed today are solely the views of the individuals involved, including today's guests and does not represent absolute facts and should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. Such views are the views of individuals and do not represent the official opinion of the International OCD Foundation. The big thing that we're trying not to do is to put expectations on the session. Right. And I think that's such a big deal. And I talk about this all the time when I do therapy with people um, is expectations and beliefs of mm -hmm. situations. Um, the anxiety and how I picture anxiety, especially when it comes to athletes, is two things. It's either about uh, achievement and performance and approval. Those are the two pieces of the puzzle that one of these, if you're concerned about one or the other, anxiety is going to build and we're going to start to see problems. Right, it's right. so important that if you're making a program for somebody or if you're, if you're following a program, that we try to mitigate how we perceive the, that expectation, that belief mm -hmm. system that we have set up. Like, I, I, have to, I have to do this today. I have to hit this today. I have to get this number. You're in North Carolina now? I'm in North Carolina now, yep. Okay. And you, you were in Utah at one point? Yep. Uh, I, I moved to North Carolina from Utah. I was there for about a year and a half. Okay. Um, previously before that, I was in Oklahoma for about a year. And then before that, I was in Arizona, uh, which is where I was getting my doctorate at. So Okay. What what school in Arizona? At AU or, or UA? Uh, it's, a, or? It, it's a doctoral school called Midwestern University. Okay. Uh, so it's all different types of doctors. But uh, okay. I, I don't know why it's called Midwest <laughs> since it's in the Southwest, but yeah. that, that's my school. Uh, so I spent my uh, five years down there getting my doctorate as well. So what kind of made you uh, pursue your doctorate um, in psychology, especially? Well, uh, it was, it is actually a pretty funny story. So when I did my undergraduate, um, I, I was a wrestler back then. I wrestled in high school. I actually, mm -hmm. you know, uh, put all of my goals based on a lot of decisions on my wrestling career, yep. which included what school I went to. And so when I got to school, naturally. <laughs> uh, so when I got to school, I, I really didn't care. Uh, and so I actually asked them, uh, the counselor or whatever, I'm like, well, what's an easy degree to do? And because uh, I, don't, I don't care. And they said, yeah. well, psychology. And I was like, fine, put me down. Yeah. And so I did my, I did my undergraduate, you know, I cared about wrestling, but, uh, I, I got my, uh, degree in psychology and then my, uh, minor was in political science and something like that. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll go to law school. And my dad was a lawyer. So I thought that was, what a great plan. I'll, I know that. And he talked me out of it. He said, don't, don't, don't do it. It's not worth it. Like, okay, fine. So I have this degree in psychology, which. I don't know if there's people listening that have a degree in psychology, but an undergrad in psychology is about uh, as worthless as it gets. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you, that's, and so, a, that's a field, right? You need at least a grad degree in. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and so I learned that the hard way. So I was, I got, I started doing my master's degree uh, mm -hmm. in forensic psychology because I thought, well, psychology is cool. I did like the law, so why not go with the combination uh, of psychology and the law and got work on my master's degree in forensic psychology. In the meantime, at night, I worked at a inpatient psychiatric facility uh, on the intensive care unit. So I got to experience really for the first time in my life, mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. I, if we're going to be honest, I had a pretty uh, nice upbringing uh, where I didn't have a lot of mental health uh, or mental illness issues uh, sure. present present in my life. So I had a pretty lucky upbringing that way. So I really, this was my real first experience with mental really health. Really opened eyes for sure. I'm sure. I, I mean, I, I think my, I mean, 
you know, my my upbringing was in Fairfield, Connecticut, a very affluent, uh, you know, place. And I think until I went through my mental health journey and was diagnosed with a severe OCD and depression and was dealing with suicidal ideation and was put into treatment, I don't think my parents really or my family or even I really understood the magnitude of what mental health is until we went we went through it together. Yeah, it really um, when, when you get that first experience, whether it's yourself or uh, in my experience with with uh, my profession, uh, when you get that first one, it, it really changes the worldview pretty quickly of how you see things. Um, those rose colored glasses come off pretty quick and then you start to see um, and recognize things a lot more uh, around you. I think you become a lot more observant of For people sure. uh, when you when you experience that. And so I got to do that and I, I worked through my master's degree and uh, out of the, I think, uh, generosity of my father and the guy who hired me, um, he got me a job in New York City working for a forensic psychiatrist. And I became kind of the workhorse out there. Um, and you've really I, been all over, man. I have. I've been, I travel a lot. Uh, you know, I, awesome. I, took, I took opportunities where I could get them. And that that's was great, everywhere. Yeah. Um, I would encourage a lot of people to do that, but that's a whole different subject. <laughs> for um, sure. But while I was out there, I was working for this guy and I thought, man, this guy has the coolest job on the planet. Um, he gets to work on all these cool big cases that you hear about on the news. And, you know, he would go and do evaluations and then he would testify and everybody looked up to him. He was this expert. I'm like, this has got to be the coolest thing ever. And I told him, I said, after working with him for about six months, I said, I, I want to do this. He's like, well, you got to go and get your doctorate. Now, if you guys were listening, um, I said he was a forensic psychiatrist. If you don't know the difference, you've also had a pretty good life. Yeah. Um, so I am a psychologist. We don't prescribe medication. Right. We're not doctors. We're not medical doctors. We're PhD or PsyDs. Right. So uh, there's a difference. I didn't know the difference. I am not that smart, apparently. Um, and so I went and got my doctorate in psychology. The thing that I thought was um, the thing that he was doing, uh, well, he was psychiatry. So he went and got his medical degree. A uh, little bit of a difference. Psychiatrists uh, have an MD as well, right? Yeah. So psychiatrists yeah. have MD. Psychologists have the PsyD right. uh, or, or the PhD. So I have a PsyD. So I'm a psychologist. I don't quite do the same thing he does. Um, so ID, um, for the listeners, I actually know the difference one, because I've been with a therapist for 10 years and, um, you know, I've seen psychiatrists and, and psychologists, but also my girlfriend is, she's in her third year of her PsyD program at, at Hofstra Uni uh, University in, in Long Island. And she, it's a uh, school psychology, uh, mm -hmm. but PsyD is, is, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but uh, more clinical based and, and practicing than a PhD, which is more research and, and that, that realm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of when you look at the differences in, in degrees between PsyD and PhD, that's what uh, they kind of try to delineate themselves between is the one's more research oriented and the other one is more clinical and application oriented. However, I will tell those people who don't know the research has shown that each are equivalent in the other direction too. the side. Uh -huh. are so good at research about as equivalent as much as the PhDs are good at clinical practice. Right. So you don't, you don't have to try to make the other one. Although there is a lot more prestige in the PhD. Uh, <laughs> they tend to look down on us poor sides, but uh, we are, we are pretty much equivalent. Yeah. Um, I think anybody pursuing a, a that level of education is should be should be celebrated and uh, and is is impressive in their own right. So yeah, I would have to agree. So that that's kind of my that's my background in psychology. I just uh, I I, <laughs> I learned an unusual lesson because I, I apparently don't listen very well. And <laughs> went with the PsyD instead of the MD, but. I'm very happy because I get to do some stuff that he doesn't necessarily get to do. I right. love doing uh, psychological assessments and evaluations. It's one of my favorite parts of my field that I get to do. 
and he wouldn't necessarily get to do that because that's something that psychologists get trained in. Um, and so I really, I really enjoy that aspect of my work. That's kind of primarily what I do. Um, I think it's incredible, man, because, you know, obviously I follow you on social media and, and I saw your side D next to your name and I was like, Oh, this is incredible. He's, you know, lifting. Yeah. You were in Cuba, right? Yeah. Just recently. Yep. Yeah. And it's like, you're lifting for the U S and Cuba. And then like, you know, I'm hearing about your work right now and it's like, you're living two, two, two lives. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really, you know, I really enjoy both and anybody who has ever met me and, uh, <laughs> will we'll know sometimes my ambition is my greatest aspect and my greatest fault. Um, <laughs> I, I stretch myself thin a lot, which is one of my biggest problems, but I just love doing so many different things and uh, weightlifting, especially when I started and I instill now the community, the people I get to know, mm -hmm. the, the fun that I have with competing is it. And it's so much different than wrestling was. And I still right. love wrestling, but I've never, I've never met anybody who wanted me to miss a lift. I, that is so true, man. I, you know, I played football growing up. I played lacrosse growing up. I played basketball growing up. And there's always people like preying on your downfall in those sports. You know what I mean? Like, and I remember when I, when my weightlifting coach found me, I had, was in, you know, strength and conditioning for a while as a strength coach at the college level. And he was like, you're, strong i had lost my competition career um you know in all the sports i played because of my mental illness and i was dying for that you know uh i was itching for that 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 competition realm again and so he you know i didn't really know much about weightlifting except for the lifts and i was not technically sound at all i mean i still you know don't I, consider, I don't consider myself technically sound but uh you know, I, I look back and it's like he saw potential in me. And when I got on the competition platform the first time, it was like everybody from other weightlifting teams was like, it like roots for you. And the community is just so it's the most welcoming and, and inclusive community I've ever I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And, and that has been my experience as well. And I hope that's most people's experience because it's such a great sport in that way that, you know, competition is still can be so friendly. You know, I, I compete on the international stage now, but I've gone through every single realm of this at one point or another. When I first started, mm -hmm. uh, I, I traveled. I didn't I didn't know what weightlifting was. The only reason I knew was because I did CrossFit for a little while. Right. So frustrated at CrossFit competitions because I'm 5'2", 120 pounds, you know. <laughs> Who, how am I competing against this 200 pound behemoth next to me? I can't. Right. I, right. I have no chance. So I would go and do this and, you know, everybody was so nice. I didn't know what warmups were. I didn't know what counting attempts was. My plan was when they call my name, I'm going to go lift whatever the heck is on the bar. Cause I don't even know what kilos is. <laughs> and everybody, everybody was so nice and inviting. And then I went to my first national competition, which was the American open in DC in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't learn anything because why would you think ahead? Um, and so I showed up to the back room. I've never seen a real back room before right. with platforms. And there's everybody's got like two coaches and they're doing all this stuff. And I'm sitting there cowering in a corner because I don't know what the heck is going on, you know? And luckily, nice enough, and this is how I met my coach, is he remembered me from one of the local comps I did in Minnesota. And he That's said, hey, unbelievable. hey, do you need help? And I'm like, yeah, I need all the help. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, people don't realize how how much goes into coaching a meet. Um, it, it is so impressive what coaches can do, especially when they're coaching multiple athletes at a time. And, yeah. you, you know, especially at nationals, you have one athlete on on platform A, one one in the C session. It's like and they're just they're doing it. And it's just it's, it's so impressive. And people just think it's like them rooting for the athlete, but it's, there's so much more than that. P timing warmups, counting reps. It's all of this. Yeah. There's, there's so much that goes into coaching. And that's one reason why I love coaching weightlifting too, because it get, it gets you involved. Um, I, I can't, I, I hope 
not too many people take this to heart and maybe the new rule change will change this, but I find watching weightlifting just ever so boring um, (laughs) from the stands. And so getting in back and seeing the back room and coaching and how the strategy actually plays out. I used to just believe the same thing as most people, whoever lists the most weight is going to win. And not always the case, you know, coaching and strategy, you know, comes into play and it's pretty important. And so, you know, trying to tie this back to psychology, there's a lot of aspects in the back room, in training and on the competition stage where psychologically, mm-hmm. you know, a coach can do a lot of damage or can be very helpful as well as the athlete in and of themselves. There's just so much that goes into it that, um, honestly, once you're at the competition, you're going to be able to lift. Hopefully you've developed a plan. And so much of competition to me comes down to mental aspects. Uh, Yeah. Mental and emotional management. Yep. And I think that, I think that that's wildly underestimated uh, still in, in the weightlifting realm. Other sports, other sports have started started to pick this up a little bit more. And I think weightlifting is too. I just, I think that it's still uh, underestimated. uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think admittedly, I, that's been the toughest part for me by far. I mean, especially coming from team sports up until I was 16. And that's when I went into treatment for my mental health. And then I found weightlifting right after college, right after undergrad and mm-hmm. coming from team sports, you know, one, you could hide a little bit, right. Um, you know, all the blame isn't you, you, there's equal blame for everybody for, for, for mistakes and for, you know, and for losses, but when you bomb out (laughs) at a weightlifting, like that is like, I take full accountability for that. You know what I mean? Like it's, that's not really anybody else's fault. And, you know, I think the, the mental game of weightlifting and the individual sport has definitely been the biggest adjustment for me is um, one with my OCD, just like staying as focused as possible, not getting Mm -hmm. triggered, which is just obviously another entity that I have to work on that people don't really understand, but also just the, the mental fortitude to come back after missing a lift or, um, you know, staying focused after having bad snatches and then then staying focused on the clean jerks, you know, just things like that, that just go into it. Or if your, your warmups don't feel great, but then going on the platform, knowing you've lifted the weight before it's, there's so many different factors. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, the, the one that most people discuss is anxiety surrounding, um, you know, all of the aspects that you actually just talked about. There's so many, um, that can, that can lead to somebody, you know, having anxiety just build up and then that can snowball as one thing becomes another, you know, some, uh, people call that, you know, quicksand. If anybody's seen, what was it? The replacements. I think they talk about What's up? It's your host, Tom Smalley. You're listening to the Smalls Talk Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to like and subscribe. I totally agree. I mean, it, it can throw you out of, of that competition so fast. Um, you know, I, honestly, transparently today, like, one, I'm on the floor coaching a ton. and um, you know, I, I was tired. Um, you know, I had a triggering day with my OCD and, you know, I go to train and the first reps and stuff just don't feel great. And it's so easy to, um, to fall into that trap of, of letting that whole day spiral. Um, and I think the biggest skill I've learned is like, I don't know, I see a lot of, a lot of people are like, Oh, like, I don't feel like lifting today, but I gotta, because you know, I got, I got to keep my goals in mind. It's like, but sometimes like stepping away when you know you're exhausted and nothing good is going to come of the session and then trying again tomorrow morning is, is the answer. I, you know, I've, I found for me myself, like training when I'm just, you know, totally out of tune and out of sorts, isn't going to produce good results for myself. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's so many parts of that that like I've tried in my own coaching career as well as in my own weightlifting career that I've tried to mitigate. Uh, you know, some things I learned from my coach and Travis Mash are daily maxes. 
you know, they'll, those, okay, here's, you do three rep max, you do what you're capable of that day, right? Don't aim to go higher, don't aim to go lower, you just do what you can. Mm. And then, you know, you have back offsets and they, they like, they enjoy downsets. A uh, thing I learned more from Sean Waxman and Takano, uh, they like ranges. So, mm. okay, we're going to live within this, you know, 60 to 75% range or the 75 to 85% range. Right. And we'll give you amount of sets, we'll give you amount of reps. And depending on how you're feeling, you can work to the top, you can stay in the middle, you can d- go down low. And they kind of try to mitigate it that way. And there's so many ways to allow it so that, okay, the big thing that we're trying not to do is to put expectations on the session. Right. And I think that's such a big deal. And I talk about this all the time when I do therapy with people um, is expectations and beliefs of mm-hmm. situations. Um, the anxiety and how I picture anxiety, especially when it comes to athletes, is two things. It's either about uh, achievement and performance and approval. Those are the two pieces of the puzzle that one of these, if you're concerned about one or the other, anxiety is going to build and we're going to start to see problems. Right, right. It's so important that if you're making a program for somebody or if you're you're following a program, that we try to mitigate how we perceive that expectation, that belief Mm -hmm. system that we have set up. Like, I, I have to... I have to do this today. I have to hit this today. I have to get this number. I have to do this many sets. It has to feel good. You know, all of these beliefs, these expectations that we place on stuff only causes us problems. There's mm-hmm. no benefit to it whatsoever. Um, and that's, Man, that's I'm honestly like, continues. I'm so glad you said that. That's like, that's what I want. what I needed to hear today. And then two, also, um, it's something that I think, a lot of lifters could could uh, really resonate with and I think need to hear because I think also social media, like how many times do I literally train? And then like, one, I feel good about it. And then I go on social media and I see someone like muscle snatching what I, what I, what I snatched today. And then two or two already had a down day where I had those expectations built into my mind and didn't have, didn't, do what I wanted. And then I go on a social media and see the same thing. And it's like, you know, that the social media and the, and the highlights of people lifts, I love seeing the, the lifting and I love the, I love watching those videos, but also those influence those expectations in my mind for sure. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we're beings that naturally do that to begin with. We always compare. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it, it's in our nature to compare for one reason or another. We're also very self-deprecating beating beings in and of ourselves as well. So that doesn't help either. Um, you know, uh, we, we talked about Cuba, you know, and I lifting against athletes, you know, whether it's across the world in China or in Europe, or even right here, I, I I'm going to say Hampton, I stopped following you. <laughs> yeah. um, Cause He's such an amazing athlete. He's so right. good. He's strong. He lifts more than I do. And I and you know what? Every time I saw him lift on social media, I couldn't help but feel bad about myself. And then guess what I did? I put an expectation on him. Like, well, this I have to hit these numbers or else I'm out of it. Right? He's right. gonna keep it, and I have to hit it. And I have to. I went through this, you know, mentally for a year of these really intense expectations I had on what I had to do to beat him. And you just, and every time you don't meet it, it breaks your, it breaks you and you, you create more expectations and then you create more problems and more anxiety. And then, you know, all these other problems come about that are getting in the way of you actually uh, accomplishing the goals that you do want to have. Right. Because like you said, I mean, if you physically prepare, you know, like, the reality is if you, if you go through a cycle and you physically prepare and you feel good, you feel good. Like when it comes to competition day, that weight, like that, you're going to, that you're those try those attempts, like you're, you're in that range. You're with you're you can do that. You can do them. Right. Sometimes the third attempt you reach obviously, but like they're all doable, but the mental game comes into play so much more than people, than people estimate. 
Absolutely. If you had a good program, if you had a coach that knew what they were doing and they peaked you and they prepared you appropriately, you're going to be capable of hitting the numbers. So that means what else could possibly be influencing how I perform, right? Mm -hmm. Diet, sure. Uh, sure. You know, uh, things like that. Absolutely. And we can try to, we All can right. try to, we can try to prevent as much uh, of hindrance of that as possible or you know, maybe it could be a benefit to some people. Some people do really well with their nutrition. I, that's one other thing that I could always work on. Yeah. But <laughs> then, it, then it comes down to what else can I do that's within my control that allows me to perform well. And there's so many different things that people do that I've learned, you know, that uh, benefit them to help them deal with their anxiety or to make it so that they can get into that zone. For, for instance, for me, I've learned I am not a serious person when it comes to lifting. If mm -hmm. I'm serious, I get too tense. I start to think about things too much. I overthink. I miss. I don't right. have fun. When I have fun, I enjoy. My coach has learned that. And so he jokes with me. He makes fun of me in the back room. We keep it light. And when I have fun, I'm relaxed and I perform. Right. And so this does not work for everybody. And I've had no, for sure. Practice, right. Some people need that concentration, that time to themselves. Some people, you know, just zone out and listen to music. Uh, there's so many different things that people do to help with that anxiety. But the important thing is, is that whatever you learn that works for you, right, we can't strictly rely on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's really important too. Flexibility and thinking is the best aspect that you could ever train yourself to have when mm -hmm. it comes to mental stability in uh, sport. I think it because routines are great. I love routines. It helps everybody. But what happens when your your clock gets stolen and then all of a sudden you're up and you got 20 seconds? Right. You don't get your full minute routine. You have to be adaptable. I totally agree. I mean, like I think routines and having something you do um, and and follow is great, but you know, the conditions are never going to be perfect. Right. And, and I think that's, I think that's really important for a lot of people to, you know, find a routine, find the perfect scenario and then learn how well you perform without it um, and, what, and what you can do to still be able to perform at least to the best of your ability without it. So uh, when you're new, get your routine down, find that. But then the more advanced you become, the more it's important for you to realize that you don't get those perfect situations all the time that you don't get to have that. And so the more you can train that I was talking uh, a little while ago with Spencer Arnold, who is mm -hmm. a great coach. I mean, obviously he's got quite a following going right, right now. He's got a lot of great athletes underneath him and he just throws wild cards at them at training whenever he can. Uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll literally have cards. <laughs> he'll just say, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to, everybody's going to stop and they're going to watch you take this lift. You know, and if, if you don't right. make it, you're going home, right? Way to put the pressure on somebody and make it so that they can adapt and be able to understand what they're capable of in certain situations. And, you know, he'll do all sorts of things like that. I, I really commend him that he went and took that level because I've never heard of another coach going to, such lengths to make sure that their athletes have such uh, durability, to be honest. Right, right. It, it was, I was really impressed by that. Uh, so I had a long talk with them. They're like, they're, they're building that robustness of the, like the, the mind, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what was it like, you know, obviously, so you started with competing when you were 25? Um, yes. Yep. 24, 25 years old. Um, yes. And you started in CrossFit and then, you know, you started competing in weightlifting. Um, obviously, you were a strong lifter. Um, and then you went to American Open Series first. So they didn't have the series yet. So just American just, Open. Just the American Open. Yeah. In 2014, that was my very first one. Um, I somehow pulled off hitting exactly the qualifying total <laughs> I needed to go, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then amazingly, when I went to that, I actually got to witness uh, Darren Barnes hit the hit his American record, and he hit double bodyweight snatch. Wow, that's wild! Yeah. And I, it was it was incredible to see, and I didn't even know who this the, guy. The was. magnitude of it at that point. Yeah, 
And yeah, now I, I still, you know, I've, I've hit double body weights in practice. I've never gotten to do it on the stage. I'm still struggling to get that thing. And, you know, I just saw him do it. And, you know, the thing about both those Barnes brothers, man, did they make it look easy. They're oh, so smooth. Their technique is great. And so it, it really, it really let me like, oh, okay, this is what this is about. And I got to really learn just by right. watching that competition. I loved it. So, yeah, definitely. And then so after America Open, how did you, what, how long was it before you were at the international stage? So I made the first Pan Am, my first Pan Ams uh, in 2016. Mm-hmm. So it took me roughly three years. Um, when you started, was that something that you had on your radar or do you think it was like, oh shit, you know, you, you went to America open and you said, oh shit, like I'm actually pretty good. When was that moment? Like, oh, I got a chance. It never, (laughs) it was one, it was never on my radar. This, I, what I have accomplished in my career is so far beyond anything I ever expected out of this. Mm -hmm. And I owe a ton of people, <laughs> a lot of thank yous. Um, I, you know, again, I, I can't believe I'm bringing up this movie twice in one interview. In the replacement, <laughs> again, in the, there, there's a little quote that says that all athletes dream of a second chance. Mm-hmm. And it's for some reason, I somehow lucked my way into getting a second chance with this sport and being mm-hmm. elite because I always thought that that dream had died with wrestling. Right, um, right. And um, I just took a chance and have gone so much further than I ever imagined. And when I did get to go to Pan Ams, I think that I, I was like, I think they made a mistake. Um, and then I got to, and then I, in Worlds in 2017, I'm like, you guys have definitely made a mistake now because there's no way I should be here. Um, I think I owe, as whether people agree or disagree with his politics, I think I owe Donald Trump one handshake because he made it so that all of the, uh, other countries couldn't come. To, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I shot to the top of the list um, because of him. So that was, that, I, I own one handshake for making one dream come true there. Yeah. But um, you know, I, this was never something I thought I would, ex- I was going to excel to such a degree. And you know, it's, I think that's why I still so one dumbfounded, but so thankful too, because for um, sure, I really never thought that it would, it would be like, this right now for sure yeah especially at my age too yeah i mean i think if people are taking one thing away from this is definitely watch the replacements and then two um i no i mean obviously not nearly on your level or or magnitude but this sport gave me a second chance too and it's something that i'm super super grateful for and just like the the ability to to compete in something again and um you know, I, I wasn't able to be a college athlete and I was a good athlete in high school until my mental illness took over. And it, it's, it was tough, you know, being a college strength coach and seeing athletes that didn't take advantage of their other resources and opportunities. And then I would say to myself, damn, like, I was such a better athlete than you. And I would have, I would, I would have cared so much more. Like, you know, you're so lucky. You guys don't know how lucky you are. And you know, I think for a while I definitely held on to not anger, but this frustration of like, I never got that chance. And then, you know, this sport provides that chance and whether it's local um, competing at nationals this year. So like, you know, at least being on a national level, just things like that, like having that opportunity is, it's just extreme gratitude. Yeah. Uh, And I think that, you know, when we talk about mental health, gratitude is such a, a big piece of what a lot of therapists try to instill in people um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, especially in depression, a lot of people concentrate on the negative and we're, and, and our brains are actually programmed to look at the negative. You know, we mm-hmm. call it being realistic, but really it's, it's a, it's, it's a cognitive defect we have of how we, mm-hmm. of how we think and, and look at the world. Um, but gratitude tries to transform that into looking at the opposite, the positive, the things that are working in our favor, that are uh, things that we can be grateful for that provide us more than what we realize we have until we really sit down and think about it. Gratitude journals are a big thing um, that I think if somebody does struggle and I've struggled, you know, with seeing the positive, especially, you know, in some uh, difficult cases of, uh, my career in weightlifting, 
of right. being grateful for the for the capabilities I do have. You know, I get I, I get fresher. I wish I was stronger. I wish I was faster. You know, my technique in in this movement it just seems awful. And no matter what I do, it just doesn't get fixed. And you know, all of these things. And sometimes you really need to be drawn back to okay, what what is going right? You know, and right, how right. for such a thing like you know, I, I, for the most part, other than some kind of hiccups, I have gone injury free and I'm 35 years old. Right, right. I, I, you know, and I lift six times a week. That's, that's incredible that I'm not broken in half at this point in time. You know? <laughs> um, and so. But you're still right. I mean, we are so uh, programmed to look at the things that are going wrong instead of the things that are going right. And chances are there's more things that are going right than wrong. Absolutely. You know, uh, more recently, I, I, I've had some trouble finding a location to train and things like that. And so mm -hmm. I've had to resort to uh, going to uh, kind of a Globo Gym, kind of bro bodybuilding. Yeah, I've seen it, your stories. I was wondering about um, about where you were training because it was like a it's like a power rack with a platform and you don't see that in a weightlifting gym. And I was like, damn, he's definitely tearing up a Globo Gym right now. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, that, and you know that's that's kind of the deal. And I can't tell you how angry I got about that. Uh -huh. um, you know, I because you know my ego also gets the benefit of me too. But you know, I I I am one of I tell myself I'm one of the best you know weightlifters in the country, and I can't find a, a gym suitable for me to be able to go and train the way I want to train. This right. is ridiculous. It's silly. It's dumb. I it is unfair. Well, you know what? I get to go lift. You know, I get to go train. I get to go do this sport that I do like doing. And I get to do it, you know, every single day. And yeah, you know, that maybe that is upsetting, but should it be? You know, right, I'm, right. I'm, again, it's expectations. I have this expectation right. that I should be given all this stuff because I, you know, maybe I accomplished something. That's not true. Right. And, and, you know, uh, instead, we have to adjust those expectations to, you know, at, at worst, a preference, right? right. I, I do not prefer, but it's okay. Yeah. It's okay that it's not happening. That's all right. Go train, you know, you can still do work and it still can be of good quality. And that's, you know, do you that think is, your, your career in psychology and, and your work in, in mental health, um, you know, working with, with, with patients, do you think that has influenced that, that gratitude and that mindset shift that, that you're able to make? That is, I think, the most profound thing that has affected me. Mm -hmm. The gratitude part is one of, especially in the past year, has been something that's really affected me when I've been working with the patients that I currently work with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for people who don't know, I work in a forensic and civil commitment inpatient hospital. Uh, most of them have a severe mental illness. They may have a severe mental illness that also includes them having gotten criminal charges mm -hmm. and that's what resulted in them being there. So when you see that on a daily basis, and especially when you see some of the more difficult and severe cases, you start to really be grateful for what the stuff you do get to have. And one thing that I do get to do, which has actually brought me the most gratitude and I never thought it would, is I get to walk out of the hospital at 5 p.m. Right. Uh, and that's that's they don't get that opportunity and that yeah, is one yeah. of the, that is one of the things that i actually get to be the most grateful for when i get all upset that i get that i have to go to this globo gym well i get to go to it you know um and the gratitude that comes from that i mean really has uplifted me a lot because mm. um there's just so many people that don't get that opportunity that you know most people think it, well it's you know, because of health reasons or, you know, injuries and these kinds of things. But there's so much more that prevents people from being able, being able to really get to go live their lives the way they want to. Um, mental health is not, uh, is not something to just disregard when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, yeah, man. I mean, honestly, like, you know, that what you just said gets me choked up. Um, it hits home on a personal level uh, for sure. And I mean, it's, you know, something I was saying to, and I, for a while, you know, I, I was, when I was diagnosed with OCD and, and I was, you know, housebound and couldn't leave my house and couldn't get out of my room. And my therapist was doing in-home patient visit visits and stuff. You know, I, I was in this pity party of why me, why me, why me? And then 
it did turn, you know, eventually into why not me, right? Why, why, of course I was given this, this, this cross to the bear because I, I can make good out of it and, and try to inspire people and, and help other people that feel hopeless, feel hopeful, you know, just, just like I was um, feeling hopeless and, and, and turn that into hope. And, but there is a, a, a part uh, you know, of me that, you know, remembers that I've always had OCD, severe OCD and, I don't know what a brain, what, what it's like to go through my day without having disturbing, intrusive thoughts every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I walk through a doorway, intrusive thought. I walk through, I close the car door, intrusive thought. I'm sitting at my desk, intrusive thought. And it's, you know, people ask me like, oh, like, why don't you just turn off your brain? Like, why don't you just stop thinking about it? Like, I can't control it. Right. Like, I, I do, I do my exposure response therapy. You know, I, I do my act and I do my, my, uh, acceptance commitment therapy, but like at the end of the day, like these thoughts are still there and I still have to cope with them. You know, every day when I wake up, I know what my day is going to entail. And it's not me asking for, you know, for, you know, pity or, or any, or, or sympathy, but it's a reality of like, okay, like we have to have that kind of gratitude because even what I go through, at least I get to go train. At least I go, go get to, I get to have a job. I'm able to have a job and, and, and have a career. I'm able to have relationships. There's people that, you know, are so detached from the world because of mental health and, and are so closed down. And then also the people we lose because of mental health. Yeah. And I think that it, what's really important when it comes to, distinguishing these types of things it, you know is one thing that I, I say to a lot of my patients especially when i first meet them is you know why are you seeking help now um because a lot of people don't want to go seek help it's a very difficult mm -hmm. thing to have to admit that we can't deal with our own problems right um, that's that's very hard and you know a lot of people say you know uh no i can handle it on my own you know, right. I got it. it. It's okay. I can take care of it or I can be, I can bear it. And then it gets to the point where they can't bear it any further. And sometimes instead of seeking the help, they have to just try to get by. Right. And getting by, I've never heard of somebody that said, I got, I, I got by and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm okay. Right. Just, right. It, it, it isn't, you know, they got by, but it, it, it left them in shambles. Mm -hmm. um, and so oftentimes I, I, I want to know why, why they decided what, what happened that caused them to walk into my office that got them right. there. Um, because it's, do I, you I find there's usually like a, like a, a one like situation that really pushed them into your office? Because I know for myself, like it was like one situation where I was like, I need help. Yeah. Um, it's it's often a significant stressor that had yeah. that kind of was the last straw that broke the camel's back. Right, right. The, one, the ones I find that don't seek the help the most are the gradual ones that mm. never really experience a really big event that led to them coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, there's a it, when they come see me, it's a big event that somebody else told them that they had to go see somebody right. that uh, or. At, in my hospital, right? So, so they became committed or they committed a crime. Um, or in my more private practice work, it's somebody that's like, Hey, my, my, my work has noticed I've gotten in trouble at work. Cause I'm not, you know, I'm not going to work. I'm not showing up. I'm not getting things done. They're telling me my spouse is telling me, right. uh, and these types of things where there's an event that kind of brings it to a head. The people that don't seem to show up as often, are the ones that are just, they kind of gradually experience this and they just continue to snowball very slowly without like a record noticeable reason as to their distress. And the, these people are the, are the ones that I, I really hope at some point uh, as mental health continues to develop and still becomes more um, uh, outspoken about is these are the type of people that I hope start to ditch that stigma. Um, of mental sure. health because these are the people that need to say, okay, I know I'm having problems, 
and it's getting too hard for me to deal with it on my own anymore. And I'm, and, and they don't wait for a big significant event to make them go in. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I think there's also a, I mean, you mentioned seeking help, seeking treatment. It definitely is, is taboo to talk about therapy. It's getting better, but I think it, there definitely is a long way to go. Yeah. Um, especially as a male, I think uh, male mental health is, is something that's so prevalent and so swept under the rug and, or shushed. And I think, um, that whether it's because of that toxic masculinity or, you know, the way our generations have, have, have pushed us forward. I think the, the male mental health of, you know, male, males are, are definitely less likely to seek help, but mm -hmm. I think we need to, as a society, take a more, and not just in mental health, but in physical health and health and wellness in general, um, you know, all different factors is take a more proactive approach than a reactive approach. Yeah. Um, and I, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and, you know, as you know, from everything that you've experienced and as through my work, men are the ones that I see most often in those, uh, in those state institutional hospitals, those civil commitments, mm -hmm. males dominate probably by 70 75% to a 25% wow. ratio from male to women, uh, if not even higher. And then when we talk about forensics, those numbers are higher in terms mm -hmm. of percentage. I would talk, I would say 90 to 95% males. Um, now there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't need to get into all that. But what I will right. say is that the proactive, like you were talking about, I think is ever so important. I think something that really needs to be addressed, possibly maybe within our school systems, that could be something is that we, we could learn a little bit about how to have proactive skills, how to- right maybe to recognize when mental health is going forward. I don't think that if, if we talk to the general public or most people that they would be able to identify symptoms of anxiety, right. We'd right. Be able to identify what symptoms of depression really look like. Um, and, or how that would feel or what that looks like in another person. Uh, I, you know, as much as I know people like to try with the internet and things like that, you right. know, when I, to them it, the, the internet can only provide so much in terms of Correct. reading um uh it, it some of it has to do with actually experiencing and, and talking with somebody who is knowledgeable in how to express that in a way that's understandable when i tell somebody about um uh, anxiety and i say hey do you experience restlessness or feeling on edge i don't think a lot of people would really be able to describe to me what that is right uh, you know, oh, you know, is, do you mean jittery? Not necessarily, you know, right, uh, right. Uh, it, it's a hard thing to, to, to pin down if you really don't know, you know? Um, yeah. And so, and so I think that being proactive, maybe in a school system, perhaps in some sort of way. Right. Uh, well, yeah. And then if you also get into those younger generations, they're going to, you know, then for the future, we're going to grow, they're going to grow up knowing the, you know, how to, and they're going to teach the, the generations below them. And so it, it, it almost is like this snowball effect, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, with what I've been doing with anxiety and athletes, our task force is like, I mean, I love talking to, to administration and colleges, but the reality is those people are 60, 70 years old sometimes. And it's like, are they going to change? I don't know. I hope I can change somebody. But, but the reality is the, the more generational and sustainable change is getting into the grassroots programs and the youth programs because – those are those are the future gener future generations, and if they grow up in these in these environments where mental health is is encouraged and talked about, we're going to be in a lot better position. I might not be alive for it, but at least we know we made the change. I I hundred percent agree. You know, I remember when I was in middle school, uh, seventh or eighth grade, I can't remember. I did a health class, and I remember that health class so vividly. Maybe that's because uh, I it was so influential. I don't know. But yeah. I remember I did a presentation on ecstasy. I still remember it. Now, imagine if somebody did a presentation or everybody did a presentation on a different commonly seen mental health issue. Right. I mean, how influential would that be for everybody to just be just that much more knowledgeable at that age when it's starting right. to begin? When at middle school, we start to see changes not only in the body physically, but also in the beginning of brain development past, right. you know, just 
what children are capable of, you know, and we can talk about developmental psych all day long, but you know, this is the time where we start to see some of the things that we describe as behavioral issues uh, in some kids when it comes to mental health uh, that are, they're finally able to actually articulate it. Children are having a very <laughs> difficult time articulating what's wrong when it comes to mental health, but teenagers, now we're starting to be able to kind of describe that in a way that's, you know, beneficial when we have conversations. I mean, sure. imagine how great it would be if they could actually say, you know what, I was in health class, we, one of my friends did a presentation, and I experienced some of that stuff. And, right, you know, I right. can describe that to you. It would be, it would make a world of difference. And at that age, there's so much potential for somebody still. Right, um, for you know, sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. To be able to do some therapy, to find some help, and then continue on with a nice, healthy uh, future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the least, at least you, uh, you know, you know all about ecstasy. So (laughs) we're all in a great position there. Um, What's next for you in terms of competition? Uh, So world's uh, world uh, championships are going to be at the beginning of September in Riyadh, um, Saudi Arabia. So I'll get to travel to Paris. We have about we have a small training camp there. I think they're kind of preparing for the Olympics, so we get to have some fun there, and then off to the cha- World Championships. Um, and then, um, depending depending on how everything works out, there's another Grand Prix at kind of at the end of the year in Qatar. Um, nice. And then, you know, more to come after in in the next for year. Sure. But those are the two that I'm kind of concentrating on at the moment. So. That's super exciting, man. What, um, so you're just like, you're solely in international lifting at this point, right? Like I said, I'm getting old. <laughs> um, I, my favorite competitions are the American open. Uh, the American open has always been my favorite competition. Yeah. I, I love going to it. It was my first ever national level one. And I still love going to it. Uh, that our national level competitions, I just think are so much fun. I get to see so many friends, you know, people I've gotten to know over the years, and I Definitely. really I miss that a lot. Actually, sure. just, just doing international, um, I really miss getting to see all those people. Uh, but I can't, I can't keep up with the young yeah, guys. Yeah, man, I hear you. I'm not, I'm not keeping up with the young guys as it is. I'm just trying to pretend for a few more years until. <laughs> but um, I can't do that many competitions, so we're we we've decided to strictly do international. Yeah, goals. while you can, yeah, while you're in that realm, you know, you can always come back, you know, and, and, and go to American open after you're done, uh, with your international career. I, I have a sneaky suspicion that I won't be able to stay away. And I think, yeah, no problem. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for, for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your time. And I thought this, this conversation was amazing. Um, some of the stuff, stuff you said really moved me and I know will will resonate and move a lot of our, our listeners. I hope so. And if anybody, you know, um, including, including you wants to talk to me more, I'm happy to, as you can tell, I love talking. Apparently I love the sound of my voice. So <laughs> I'm happy to talk. Uh, if we want to do this again, I, I yeah, absolutely. It very much. So happy yeah, to do anytime. Awesome. Thanks so much, bro. All right. Have a good rest of the day.